Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the fact that you would write us these, these words, that you would give us these stories and these letters, that you would provide these things from, from world history and from people's personal history about their interactions with you and what you did during these times, how you, how you moved in people's lives, how you moved in nations' lives, um, and how you ordered all things uh, for your plan. It always comes back to what is your plan and how does it then become unveiled to us and shown to us. And we pray tonight, Lord, for unveiling uh, for our minds, our hearts, our souls. Pray for these gathered here, Lord, that you would speak a word to them, encouraging them, loving them, blessing them, instructing them. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, jumping into chapter 8, actually before we jump into chapter 8, let me just do a quick little review of the book to catch you all up. So, <clears throat> Esther was written during the time of the Medo-Persians, which is about, I'm just going to do MP, so that doesn't stand for military police or anything else or British government, Medo-Persia. <clears throat> book starts around 4... 86 BC. At the beginning, we have King Ahasuerus, which is the same as King Xerxes. Um, he gets mad at his wife, who at that time was Vashti. She gets deposed. This is the Cliff Notes version. Um, he goes to war, and later on, he has a, um, or his, his servants actually suggest that he has a, a, a beauty contest, basically. Uh, where young women are conscripted. Uh, from those, a young woman who's a Jew named Esther is chosen. Esther is a Jew from in the, uh, who lives in, in Medo-Persia, in the city of Susa, which is very close to Babylon. Um, this is during the, what is called the post-captivity time. So this is after uh, the Jews have been taken captive from the Babylonians, but they're now have been allowed to, to come back, but some of them don't. And Esther and her family, her cousin Mordecai, are part of those who don't. They are in Susa, and the evil character, Haman, comes on the scene, and he's offended by something that Mordecai does. Mordecai does not give him homage or bow before him. Um, and Haman, rather than being a polite guy and just ignoring this guy's lack of deference, decides that he's going to offer to the king, King Xerxes, a plan that would actually kill all of the Jews, which at that time were, in all the provinces of Medo-Persia, about 15 million people. So Xerxes, unfortunately, doesn't do much research on this guy's request. He says, sure, go for it. Let's take out these people who were against these laws or against the king. This comes out, people are very upset, perplexed, as the scriptures say. Mordecai doesn't know what to do. He goes around in, uh, in sackcloth and ashes, 
And, and he tells Esther, who is now the queen, hey, you've got to do something. And this is where we get this, that famous um, uh, passage from Esther chapter 4. Uh, Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. She then says, okay, if I perish, I perish. Go get the people. Let's pray. And then last week, we see the response of her prayer that she prepared these two banquets and invited Xerxes and Haman to those banquets. And bit by bit, the thing was unveiled by, I think, the second day that Haman had done this terrible thing in in producing this law that would actually kill her and all her people because she now reveals that she was a Jew. For much of the book, she was not telling who, what, um, kind of what nationality or race she was. Then she reveals it. And... The king sees that Haman is the one who's been kind of doing all these kind of terrible things behind, this, behind his back, uh, not telling him exactly what he was doing, including building a gallows to kill Mordecai. And Haman then, um, by providence sake, uh, is one who is hung on those gallows, and we see that at the end of uh, chapter 7. So now, beginning in chapter 8, we're going to see... What happens after Haman is taken out? (coughs) Excuse me, one second. Now, it would seem that the uh, when Haman was was executed, that there would be a lot of relief. But unfortunately, that's only actually a, a slight solution. And I just want to take you back to this really important concept within the book, which is the idea of the king's law. <coughs> In Medo-Persia, once something became a law, it could not be taken away. You can't just be like, oh, it's a bad law, we're going to get rid of it. No, it was, once it was on the books, once it was spoken, once it was sent out, it was a law. <clears throat> and there had been a law written that on this specific day, in the month of Adar, that the people could go and kill and annihilate all the Jews. This is something that, that happened in early in the, earlier in the book. And that law was still in place, even though Haman, the architect behind it, the person who put the idea together, the one who had this, this evil desire, even though he had perished from the scene, the law that he put into place that Xerxes signed and sent out was still there. So even though Haman was gone, the threat against the Jewish people was very much alive. And so now we see what really happens with that. So beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, <coughs> on that day, King Ahasuerus, which is again Xerxes, gave uh, Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. So the house now is being transferred over to Esther. Esther gives it to Mordecai. And the king now understands Esther and Mordecai's relationship as cousin and younger cousin, basically, as their family. Now, verse 3, now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite 
and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. Remember that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, and one of those was the king Agag, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So he comes from a lineage of people who have been very rude and very um, uproarious to the Jewish people. And verse 4, And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Now, the golden scepter is very important because here again, Esther is, is showing us that she's putting her life on the line in order to request something of the king. You were not allowed to go into the inner court to make a request of the king unless he invited you in. If he, wasn't, he didn't invite you in and you went out there and he did not extend the golden scepter, you'd be killed. Now, I tried doing this in my own house. I was like, man, this is going to be a great way to, to talk, about, like, talk about order in my house. So I, I sat down my wife, my kids, and I was like, oh, guys, here's what's going to happen. When I get up in the morning, unless I call you in to me, especially when I'm having breakfast and a Pop-Tart, if I, if I haven't called for you and you come in, it's over, you know? So I got this little toy, golden scepter. No, I'm just kidding. No, so it's not, it's not the best way to run a family, I must, I must admit. All right. So anyhow, so she's, she takes this brave step again to, and, and laying her life down again. And she's, she's pleading, right? We, we see that with tears, with tears, like, please, please, please revoke this law. Take this thing away. But again, the king's law, the way the culture is set up, didn't work that way. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if, if it pleases the king and I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then a king Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. <coughs> So this is kind of a workaround. He's, he doesn't really answer the question of revoking the law because he knows you can't do that. So what can you do? <clears throat> well, if you've written one law, can you just write another law? Sure. So that's basically what they do. They had one law that was bad, and then they wrote another law which to, to fix the bad, And then we'll see how it goes. And that's basically what happens. He says, go ahead and write a law. I'll sign it with my signet ring. Now notice this, the signet ring, I think most people know this, but just to kind of to cl to clarify, um, rings uh, for kings, he often had like a very giant um, circle with a, either a picture of the king or the king's name. 
Um, and what they would do, the kind of classic old school letters, is they would fold up a manuscript and put wax on it, and then they would put the seal, the ring, the sign, the signet, and then once they saw that symbol on the letter, then it would be approved by the king and thus become a dictate or, or an, an edict, sorry, an, an edict or a law. So he says, go ahead and take the ring so they'll know it's official, <clears throat> and then go ahead and, and write this new, the, new law. So in verse 9, so the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day, and that's, that's actually nine months before this, uh, this unfortunate death date would come. So this, there's still that nine months to prepare, which is good. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So the, the new law that replaced, that, that kind of counters the old law was these guys on this specific day would have the right to assault those who would come against them. Um, we have a similar law on our books. Um, I guess it's in, it called, got the, kind of called it the castle doctrine, which is that if somebody comes and assaults you, now this is, of course, for us, this is... This is um, Anytime this happens, for them, this was on a specific day because the law said that they could attack the Jews on a specific day. So they were given the right to defend themselves on one day. That must have been a crazy day, by the way. <laughs> and we'll, we'll read more about it, but it, it really was a crazy day. I think almost 76,000 people died on that day. Um, so basically, the new law says you have the right to defend yourselves or to assault those who are coming, coming after you. And isn't it crazy that this law even... I'm still astounded by this. I know I've talked about this many times in here, but I'm still astounded that a, a law could be passed that had to do with killing women, children. I mean, like just going after every single aspect of this one group of people, and they just did it. But when you look at world history, as astounding as that is, you find that these things have happened many, many, many times. It's a despicable part of the human race. I mean, you take a look at the human race, you take a look at human history, and once you get underneath the, the covers of, of the history and you just find out things that really went on in all kinds of generations, you find that human history is just a big old mess of people sinning against one another and cultures against one another and civilizations and all this stuff. So anyhow, this is just part of that. If I was trying to get to somewhere else with that, I forget where it was, so we're just going to continue on. <laughs> Castle doctrine, that's where we were. Castle doctrine, so the right to defend themselves against those who would assault them. And notice also at the end of verse 11, and also to plunder their possessions. So they were given the right, and actually in the original law, which is in, uh, go, let's go take a look at it. Chapter 3, verse 13. 
<clears throat> in the original law that went out, the law the, of, of, of whom the, of Haman was the architect, it did say also, uh, yeah, verse 13 of chapter 3, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. Again, I'm just astounded by that. In one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their positions. So part of this new law was saying, and if you can you know, defeat them, you can take their stuff as well. That becomes important a little bit later on as we read. <clears throat> so, verse 13. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. And then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Some interesting things to note here at the end of chapter 8. We'll kind of start at the end and work our way backwards. So, do you ever think that people would become Christians because of fear? I mean, usually we think about fear in a kind of uh, like... God, God is not the God of, of fear, but he's God of love, right? Perfect love casts out fear. This is one of the scriptures in the New Testament. But there's this aspect where people do have a certain kind of respectful fear of who God is. And I think for many of these people, they were seeing that these Jews had someone fighting for them behind the scenes. And they say, man, if that's their God that, that protected them, that is allowing them to, to change the laws of this foreign king, if somehow they were able to get, get through here and, and survive as a people, maybe that's for me. We forget, actually, that, that Judaism is simply a, a, a religion that people could join who, no, matter, no matter their culture. We often think, of course, of the Israelites and the people from the Middle East, but there are Jews all over the world. Jews from the captivity, Jews, Jews in Africa, there are Jews in South America, Jews, Jews are all over the place. And those who would become Jews were simply those who were wooed, impressed, and convicted that their God was the God. So I think that's kind of an interesting point. Sometimes I think maybe we should pray, rather than just people being either convicted of sin or uh, that they would see like our good works, like, Lord, help them to learn to fear your name, to see you as high and mighty, to see your name as, as the one name that could protect them. Help them, to, help them to see these attributes of who you are. A second thing that I, is, is kind of important for me in this, in, in the end of chapter, chapter 8, is that, of course, Mordecai is, 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 is now kind of the dude. He's... he's um, he has all kinds of interesting uh, royal apparel, and he's obviously uh, been given a great deal of responsibility and respect. But it says here that the Jews and, the, and those in, the, in, in Shushan were glad, and the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. Now, 
This tells us that, of course, before this time, before this law was passed, the opposite is true, that they did not have light and joy and honor. They, they were now being, felt like they were being redeemed and that they were being taken care of, but before that, they were not. And I think that brings up an interesting thing about when we also experience light and gladness, joy and honor. I think it's very, very easy to have a sense of, of light and joy and honor when, when you see the, the Calvary coming to rescue you. You know, when you feel rescued, you're going to have a sense of that light, that sense of joy, that sense of gladness. <coughs> and that makes a lot of sense. But I want to remind you that before this time, um, Mordecai had a sense of peace and joy and gladness that was outside of whether or not in that particular situation he felt safe or he felt protected <clears throat> or he was concerned. Look with me back in verse 14 of chapter 4. <clears throat> Again, the famous conversation he's having with Esther, although it's through a go-between. He says, he says to her in verse 14 of, of chapter 4, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Now, we talked about this back in the study of chapters 3 and 4, but I want to kind of highlight this. Relief and deliverance. And it's not just those two, two ideas, but that they will come. And I think this is something that we really need to focus on as, as Christians. Because if there's anything that's going to strengthen your walk with Christ, it's going to be learning how to be a Christian who can take the knocks of life, quite simply. When the knocks of life come and, you know, you get the thing in the mail that stuns you or the thing happens in your life that you know, kind of cuts you down at the knees and you're kind of a little weak, you're like, whoa, whoa. We all have moments like that. But how are we supposed to react to them? One is we can freak out. I'd hardly suggest that you don't do that. And two is you can respond much like Mordecai did in the midst of realizing something terrible was coming. He said, relief and deliverance will come. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I think there's a reason why he was able to say that and mean it. And I think it's because he had his eyes on what I would call a different kind of joy. Now, I spoke last time about the issue of joy, and I talked about it from the perspective of what our joy is, is in and what, and what and our joy is taken away, what we need to kind of realize that that could be a, a potential idol in our lives. All right, if your joy is suddenly taken away from you, you need to kind of study that. You need to study that in your life. Why was my joy taken away? Why, why did I suddenly become unfaithful? Why was I suddenly downcast? What, what, is there something that I'm focusing on or, or, or hedging bets my bet on? And, and, and to take note of that, this is something different. This is what do you actually place your joy and your assurance and your hope in? Where, where is it that, that that rock that cannot be moved, where does that come from? And I think for, for Mordecai, who we very much see as one of the more mature characters in the entire book, 
I think it came from an understanding of prophecy and promise. When I'm having a bad day as a Christian, or, or a bad week, or a bad month, or a bad half a year, there's, there's generally two things that I do. One is I read the end of the book of Job. I don't know if anybody's familiar with the end of the book of Job. We're just starting that in our Friday study. But the end of the book of Job is this awesome hand slap of, of God <laughs> upon the fact that you and I are finite. He basically says to Job, you're finite. You don't understand all these things. You weren't there when they were made. You don't know how it's all going to turn out. Stop pretending like you do. Were you there when I made the Leviathan? The answer is no, though he doesn't let him respond. He just speaks for three pages. It's awesome. And he just basically goes, Psh, you're not God. Psh, I am. Psh, I made all this stuff. Psh, you made nothing. And he just puts Job in his place, but it's a place of beauty because there's power there, because you're just like, it's a place you need to be, that you are man, and he is God. Now, there's, there's nothing more kind of simple to understand, right? And yet, we slip from that somehow. We, we forget that, yes, we are just mortal, weak, ill-tempered, you know, sinful. Man, we're just, you know, we're just, we're the grass, right? The grass withers, fades away. But the Lord and the word of the Lord, that, that remains forever. And it's that word of the Lord, that idea of the things God has promised in his word. That's the place of security for the saint. It's who God is himself, and it's also what that God who is so sure and awesome has said. Now, at this time of Mordecai, and Esther. There's something else going on in the kingdom, which is that this is also during the time, or just following after when Zerubbabel has gone to, um, to uh, fix the temple. And later Ezra is part of that, Ezra and Nehemiah. And, um, and they're fixing the temple back in Jerusalem. Now, interestingly enough, we know that Mordecai and Zerubbabel knew each other because in, let's see, where was this? Where's the scripture where we talk about that? In Ezra 2.2 and Nehemiah 7.7, it says that when Zerubbabel came to Jerusalem, that Mordecai, there was a man named Mordecai with him. I'm assuming it's the same guy. In fact, this is just my theory, but I think Mordecai was probably with him, wanted to go to Jerusalem, had to probably turn back and go take care of his cousin. That's probably why he ended up back in, in, in Sushan, or in Susa. Now, Zerubbabel is in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple. It's a very exciting process. Later, they'll be fixing the wall. The Jews are coming back. If this law that Xerxes has passed goes through, it means that not only the people of, of, of Persia in, in Susa and in Babylon, and these areas will be destroyed they cover that entire Jerusalem area as well. All those Jews that went back, even though they'd gone through the 70-year captivity and all the, the promises that they would return to the land, they would be killed also. And Zerubbabel will be killed. Now this is interesting. There are prophecies about the Messiah coming through certain lineages. 
back in Genesis 49, we're told that the Messiah would come through Judah. Go ahead and read that if you have not. If you've not read the 49th chapter of Genesis, it's a whole prophetic outworking of the 12 tribes. And through the tribe of Judah, it says uh, Shiloh will come, the, the one who, who brings peace. That's, that's kind of a, a term for the Messiah. In 2 Samuel 7, we're given further detail about the messianic line, that the Messiah would then also come through the house of David. And we see through David, through Solomon, as well as his son Nathan, that the Messiah would come. And this is, of course, when we go back and, and look at the genealogies found in the first chapter of Matthew, as well as the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke. These are the two lineages of Christ. When Matthew's linea- uh, genealogy talks about um, <clears throat> the legal lineage, which is that which comes through uh, the father, uh, Joseph. The one in Luke is the one through Mary. They both go through David. They split. One goes to Solomon. One goes through Nathan. Guess who else is in the lineages for both of them after that point? Zerubbabel. He's in both the houses. Now, I don't know if, if Mordecai was aware of this, but looking back at it and, and seeing about his, his, his assurance of the, of the promises of God and his, his, his assurance that this help and this deliverance will come, when you couple that with the knowledge of that these things had been set in place as prophetic promises before. He had a choice. He could either cause the current situation to just drive him into wild fear, or he could kind of just do this. And this is, this is kind of the second thing I do. I read the end of, end of Job, and that kind of gets me back. I feel like that's like the cold water. Where it's like, oh, okay, all right, you're God. I'm not great. But then the second thing is, okay, so what have you said? And this idea that God has promised a Messiah was definitely something the Jews were holding on to. It's the same thing that you and I hold on to, but looking backwards. And I think this is, when you want the assurance that relief and deliverance will come, you have to stand on a word and a promise that God gives, because that is the surest thing that you can stand on. And this idea of prophecy and promise is very important for the Christian, just as it was important for the Jew. Zerubbabel actually, in Ezra 4, 6, and also in Haggai, I always wonder if it's pronounced Haggai, because it'd be like, Haggai, what's up? <clears throat> it's probably more formal than that. But in Haggai 2, 21 through 23, basically, I'm not going to go through them, but the Lord talks about how important Zerubbabel is in accomplishing his plans. And I can't help but wonder if part of that is not just because of what he, he did during the time, but the fact that this messianic line would go through him on both sides, the, the lineage of Mary and the lineage of Joseph. So that's the first part. That's the first prophetic aspect. The second prophetic aspect is this. Anyone who had, who had been a, a student of of prophecy would also know that this idea of Medo-Persia, who at the time was like the giant bear on the block, in fact, they're actually known prophetically as a bear, and we'll study that in just a minute, would only be in power for a certain amount of time. I've talked about this in previous classes, right? 
that Medo-Persia is in power now, but they took over from the Babylonians who were in power before them. And after them are going to come the Greeks, and after them are going to come the Romans. And the Romans will end up falling too. And so I think also he was aware of the fact that this idea of world history, this idea of how long the Medo-Persian Empire would last, was something that he knew would have an end. And I want to kind of show you this a little bit. Turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Okay, so Daniel 8, 20 through 22. Now, Daniel was during the time of the Babylonian captivity. So this had already been written. I don't know for sure how, how the scriptures got back and forth to people, but this was already in existence during the time of, of Esther. So Daniel 8, and there's a lot of interesting things in the book of Daniel if you haven't studied it before. Chapter 8, verse 20. <clears throat> there's a vision about these rams, and it says here, um, the ram which you saw having two horns... They are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, this particular ram had one horn that was higher than the other. And we find that out from earlier in the chapter. That's because the Persians were the more dominant culture combining together the Medes and the Persians. There were two different cultures that were combined together in this empire. One had a higher horn. That's the semblance of that. They are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat, which we read about in, earlier in chapter 8, is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So the kingdom of Greece would come uh, shortly after this. And actually, it's interesting, the Hebrew term for Greece actually is the word javan, J-A-V-A-N, which stands for, this is the son of Japheth, one of the sons of Noah. So the idea is that the people group that were descended from Noah, from Japheth, from Javan, settled in the land known as, the, as, as Greece. <clears throat> now, the Medo-Persians were the, this, this goat with two, was it a goat? No, the ram, sorry. <coughs> Excuse me. And it says there, after them, would come the kingdom of Greece. So obviously somebody, uh, some other nation would take over after them. So there's this law and all these things that would happen, kind of taking back to this context, would only last until the next foreign power came in and made their own laws, right? But it also says of Greece that, um, let's see, what does it say? As for the broken horn, they, most people think that that horn is, is likely Alexander the Great, which is the, the greatest um, um, soldier within uh, the Greek um, people. Um, but when he died, actually he died, I think he got, he got, I think he got drunk and got pneumonia or something like that. I think, I think that's how he passed away. But anyhow, his, 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 his uh, kingdom was, was passed on to his four generals, actually. And that's when we read this in the prophetic passage. This is before this happened, right? Daniel, we're talking like the 500s BC. Greece, we're talking about the 330s. Right? This, is, this is well over 100 years before any of this happened. <clears throat> and when, when Greece was, was divided up, it was divided into four generals. Ptolemy, you ever heard of the Ptolemaic period? Ptolemy was given Egypt, the Seleucids, that's Seleucus. They were given Syria, Asia Minor, and the East. 
Lysamachus took over Thrace and adjoining territories, and then Cassander ruled over Macedonia and Greece itself. If you've read prophecy and you've, you've seen, because it's showing you things in the future to become, then you, you rest in that because you know that at some point this will come fulfilled. And even for those who were in Medo-Persia, they had, they had been in captivity and they knew, according to Daniel actually, that they would only be there for 70 years and then they would go back and they've already seen that happen. Now guys, here's the big lesson. When you've seen God fulfill a promise and then you get to the next step in your life where you have to see and wonder if he's going to fulfill the next promise, you got to look backwards and see how many promises has he really fulfilled? How many promises has God actually fulfilled? You, you know someone's word by the accuracy of their word. And the word shows us so many promises, promise upon promise upon promise upon promise upon promise upon promise, that the Lord himself, that great Lord of the end of Job, that great Lord, right? Not just the one who gets you through the morning. Not, not just the one who comforts you when you're sick. The Lord of history. The Lord who has it all planned out. That great Lord, right? He is no small Lord. He is no small king. He is no small God. He, he knows exactly what will happen. Exactly what will happen. And you look at his promises. And you see them fulfilled. And then you make this decision in your, in your mind and your heart. Okay, I will wait for you to fulfill the next promise you have that you have given me. Or I will stand upon this word and this promise that I have received from you. For us, we look back on the Messiah. We see, we see the prophetic record come. We see it fulfilled. We see Christ born at exactly the time in the history when he said it would come. Exactly through the lineages that he said it would come through. Exactly through the line of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we place our hope on this. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our light. This is our gladness. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if these great threats come against us. Stuff's going to happen. But we have this sure prophetic word in which to hope. And I want to remind you guys, in the New Testament, Jesus speaking to his disciples in John 14, they were wondering about all this kind of stuff, but for themselves in their own time. And they were like, well, what's, what's going to happen to us? And, and in John 14, Jesus spoke to them. He said, in my father's house, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, for his followers, for his disciples. I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Of course, you guys probably know what happens next. The guy in the back of the room, 
I don't know the way. And then, then Jesus gets into this whole, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is, how do you get to that place? Through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. This is a prophetic word in the New Testament for us. Some people think that prophecy was only something from the Old Testament. No, 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 no. Look at the promises Jesus made. Those are prophetic promises for us to hold on to, to walk in, to remember, and to be strengthened by. Mordecai had this kind of mind, and I would just simply encourage you to be built up in the promises of God because that's where the peace is that will handle the storms. Who's going through a storm right now? I am. Who's about to go through a storm? The people who didn't raise their hands. <laughs> oh, I wish that weren't so, but it's, it's, it's totally so. <laughs> Guys, we can have Mordecai-like assuredness. And again, I, I, I jumped off this from from the fact that the Jews at this time, when they found out that they were going to be spared, that's where their light and their joy and their gladness is. And again, there's something wrong with that. When you, when you realize and when you experience uh, saving grace, you know, that's awesome. But they, they should have known that God had their back. And they should have placed their hope not in just the fact that things were looking better, but they were, they were already known by the Lord of the universe. They, they already could speak to him. They could already take from him his promises. So let us do likewise. Amen? Amen. Amen. So now we find out what happens on the day itself. They've, they've, they've concocted this second law. And now the second law goes into effect. Chapter 9. Now in the 12th month, so this is now oh, is it nine months later, <clears throat> That is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, I love this, the opposite occurred. This is just an awesome chapter. This is like, this chapter is like the, the third movie of the Star Wars trilogy, right? <laughs> it's like, what's, it, what's that one called again? It's the, it's not, What? The return of the Jedi, yeah, the return of the Jews, yeah. <clears throat> so they, um, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. Now we saw we talked about that, that that fear issue at the end of the chapter caused many to actually become Jews. But here now we see that it, it, it's causing them to be very, very cautious in battle, and that's never a good thing in battle. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. This is just, must have been a tremendous, interesting day, you know, to see them be like, oh, oh, since, since Mordecai is now so powerful, then we, we better make sure that we, we're, we're following doing what he's doing, you know. So now all the people in authority and in power, <coughs> excuse me, are, uh, are joining the fight and going against all the, the, first, the first law people. 
Verse four, for Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. So just, just to point this out, they're saying locally this is what happened in this particular city when they decided to go against those who were attacking them, they killed 500 men. That's just, that's just the locality. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed, I'm sorry, I just read that, 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Porantha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vajasatha. Vajasatha. <laughs> That's just a bad name on so many levels. I mean, just the, the sound, the possible. <laughs> Vajasatha. So these, these names are the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And they killed them, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Take note there at the end of verse 10, they did not lay a hand on the plunder. We'll come back to that. Now, I kind of was looking through this and I was like, I wonder what, what and who these 10 sons were. And so I just did a quick little study and I kind of found something slightly interesting, which is what, what do the names actually mean? And I'm just going to go fr from Parshandatha through Vajasatha, classic, and tell you what the names actually mean, because usually when people give someone a name, they, they do it with a particular purpose. So we begin, and the first name means given by prayer. The second name means dripping. The third name, aspatha, means the enticed gathering or given by a horse. Paratha means fruitfulness or a Persic ornament. Adalia means I shall be drawn up of, of Yah. So that's, those are the first five, and it seems like, I don't know, somewhat normal, like interesting references to things that might be going on in a person's life or what they like or anything. But then it kind of changes, beginning in Aridatha. And you'll notice a lot of these names at the end of the list have the, 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 the three letters A-R-I before them. These mean, Aridatha means the lion of the decree or strong. Parmashta means superior or strong-fisted. <clears throat> Arisai means lion of my banners or lion. Aridai means lion is enough or strong. And Vajasatha means actually strong as the wind given of the best one. <coughs> I think this is interesting because what we know of Haman was that Haman was obviously a very power hungry individual. Right? He kind of got, kind of got hooked on the idea of power. Someone didn't bow before him. He got wildly outrageous and got laws and all this kind of stuff to kill all the Jews. And I think it was just kind of interesting as I looked through this, it's almost like I could kind of see, and again, I'm just, I'm just looking at this with a little bit of a conjecture, that as he went along and he had his sons, that he became himself completely obsessed with the idea of power. Like he was, he was written into the names of his sons. So anyhow, take that for what it is. It's just kind of an interesting note. Um, so these 10 uh, sons were killed. Uh, verse 11, now, on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. Verse 12, and the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? 
Now remember, this is the king now speaking to Esther. He's like, this is, he's giving her a report. And he says, now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Now this is so fascinating. In every other instance in this, in this entire story, when, when Xerxes does something, it's because Esther has to come to him. And in fact, has to come to him under the threat of potential death, waiting for the golden scepter. But here we have the other way around. Now here is, here is Xerxes, seeing, having seen what Mordecai did in saving him at the, when, at the first time of this assassination attempt, seeing now Mordecai being uh, a, a, a friend of, of Esther, a, a family member, seeing now that they were against Haman who was trying to just hang uh, Mordecai and who had devised this incredible evil. And now it's like Xerxes has joined the rebel fight, right? He's like, you're like I'm going to be a rebel leader now. It's, it's, I'm, I'm in. And he just starts, he just asks Esther now, hey, what, what do you want? What's next? And so there's obviously something has changed in him that Esther doesn't have to go to him yet again, but he is now kind of leading in, 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 in providing for this defense of the Jewish people, which is pretty cool. <clears throat> it doesn't last. I hate to not spoil it there. It doesn't last. <clears throat> Then Esther said, verse 13, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree and let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan and they hanged Haman's 10 sons. So basically she said, let's just, let's try this battle thing one more day just to show people like, hey, you can't just come and take us. And then for exclamation mark, let's hang the, the sons of Haman. Now they were already dead, so this is probably a kind of like a, just, just a symbolic visual gesture of these, these dudes way up there uh, hanging and be like, don't mess with the Jews, sorry. Just don't do it, it's a bad idea. And historically we can see that that's true also. <clears throat> so verse 15, and the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. So I I've said before, we'll come back to this issue of the fact that they did not lay a hand on the plunder. I think this is quite telling and actually quite important. So they have killed 70, <clears throat> 75,810, if you add up all the numbers, dead. And the law, remember the, the fix the bad law, said that they could uh, uh, attack those who were attacking them, and they could also take plunder from them. Like, uh, if you came against me, then I get your car, basically. <laughs> you know? Oh, it's a Ford Focus. Man. Um, I hope you guys aren't giant fans of Ford Focus. I think, you know what it was? I, that's the car I drove in order to take my driver's test. So I've always kind of in my mind, it's always been this kind of like, after I get through this, I'm going to be out of this car. You know, kind of thing. 
<clears throat> Anyhow, where was I? Okay, so how much plunder could you get from s- almost 76,000 people? You know, talking about food, provisions, homes. I mean, when you plunder, you can take their stuff. That'd be a lot of stuff. But we're told over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, despite the fact that that was in the law, they didn't do it. And I think this is actually a really important principle for us as Christians. When you are allowed to take, or maybe something has happened and it's been rectified and you're, you're, you're allowed to kind of, your, your day of glory, your day in court. We had our day in court and we won or whatever it is. Or something bad has happened and now it's become favorable for you. And you're, you're given permission to take such and such. Should you? I think the principle here is, is a powerful one. And I really like the fact that they didn't because what I see from this is I see self-control. Let's say you're at a house. Let's say you've just had dinner with somebody who's been treating you poorly for three years. You go into the house, you have a conversation. The person says, look, there's this stuff going on in my life. I didn't really mean to take it out on you at work, but I just, I did. And I'm sorry. And you're like, wow. Didn't expect that. And you leave, and you walk by the guy's car on the way out, and you've got your keys. Should you key his car? (laughs) This is the one thing you're going to remember from this lesson. Pastor Jeff said we shouldn't key people's cars. I think we already knew that, but he said... (laughs) <laughs> that used to be more of a thing, right? To key somebody's car. It's, it's, I guess it still is. But like, there's this idea of, of vengeance, right? Like even when something's been corrected, you can have this idea that now that you have a little bit more power in the relationship or that you are now, oh, so I was the right one. So what are you going to do for me? Or like, ha ha, well, I can do something to you. And we just learned about this in Deuteronomy, did we not? This great saying, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. And I think there's something about plunder that is kind of vengeful, even though it was, again, allowed in the law, that says, we beat you, and now we're going to just take all your stuff too. Historically, we don't find that the Medo-Persians ever had a giant problem with the Jewish people. In fact, they were one of the nations that were most generous to them in many, many ways. Historically, giving them freedom, land, all this kind of stuff, provisions for building the the temple, provisions for building the wall. And I can't can't prove, we're not told in the text that that was the only reason why, but if you're gonna make good with with those who were your enemies, not rubbing their face in it is a really good way (laughs) to do it. And I like the self-control. I like the fact that even though the opportunity was there to key the car, they said, you know what? It's a nice Buick. I'm just going to let it be. So take with that um, what you will. An ethical line. Where's your, what's your ethical line? Where do you say, you know, that's, I've, I've got enough. I don't need to. I don't need to have any more. Because it applies not only to situations where where you've been righted, but just like 
when you're, when you're able to, to take whatever, you know? Like my, my kids, when they go to a, a bank, and they, like the old, I remember the old-fashioned banks, they had like a little thing of lollipops in there. And we'd be like, hey, there's 14 lollipops. That means we get to take 14 lollipops. <laughs> it's like, why don't you just take one? It's the same thing. Where's, where's your ethical line? You know, the consideration for others. There were families that were of these, of these dead, the people that were, were stupid enough to actually attack them. They had families. This is a way of saying, I'm not going to take it out on your family. I think it's important to have ethical lines. Anyhow, moving on, verse 18. But the Jews who were at Sushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. That's kind of cool. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish them among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy and send presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadath of the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast purr, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days, this, this feast, this celebration, Purim after the name Pur, which is what means lot. Uh, or kind of when, they, when they, they, they kind of rolled the dice. What day are they going to kill all the Jews? Da, 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 and all oh, the 13th day of Adar. And now they're like, that lot has been turned, has, been, has basically been redeemed from a day of death to a day of, more, of, of joy. So they call these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what, they had happened, what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants that all who would join them and that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province and every city that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim, and Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. How good do you think it felt when they had been before sending all these kind of crazy laws about destroying, and then another law about defending themselves, to finally send out a letter that says, why don't you have a feast? and then send that out into the entire kingdom. 
What a different kind of letter this was. Why don't we set these days aside, these days of death, and rejoice? And they sent presents to each other, and they gave gifts to the poor. This feels like Christmas, doesn't it? I like the fact that they established this. The, the holiday of Purim is established and, and, and is celebrated to this day. Um, this last year, um, it was March 16th and 17th. This coming year in 2023, it'll be March 8th and 9th. And now the shortest chapter of the entire book, I told you we'd get to the end of it. We'll close out our study tonight. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. He taxed them. Now, I want to point out one thing about this. This is just kind of interesting. That this feels like Xerxes is back to him, his old self. When Esther was talking to the king, to King Xerxes about, about it and, and talking about this, this is in chapter 7, uh, verse 4. She said, my people are going to be destroyed and I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. And I mentioned this before. I think she was pointing out to him like, you would be responsible for killing all the Jews, but for a king, that's a bigger deal than just loss of life. It's also loss of income. There's no tax on those people. The workers, all this, like the, the importance in the economy. And so she pointed this out to him. And now in chapter 10, we see Xerxes, the first thing he does, oh, he's had some time in Tashin. He's feeling good. And what does he do? He imposes tribute on the land. He just, like, right back to his old self. We're not told that Xerxes, like, really had any kind of uh, deep religious um, change. We know that the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he had a giant religious change in his life at the end of, of his life. Um, but we're not told that that happened with Xerxes, unfortunately. So he imposed tribute on the land. He decided, oh, I will, I will tax these people now that they're alive and safe. Let's get money from them and probably conscripted them for the army. Um, <clears throat> we know that happened at the beginning of, of the book of Esther as well. Now, all the acts of his power and his great might, I'm sorry, and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? Now, I don't know if that, that book actually still exists. Um, I, it's very hard to find a lot of ancient literature. Um, the Bible is, of course, one of the most best preserved in the world. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, so he's like, kind of like a Joseph figure, and was great among the Jews and well-received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. And I will, I will end with this. This is such a lovely end note as far as looking again at the beautiful character of Mordecai. We, we've seen him do tremendous things, you know, holding his peace and, and standing on God's promises and, and, and even confronting Esther and kind of challenging her. And after all this, again, he, and, he had to, and he had to raise her up. He was not her father. He was her cousin. After all this had transpired with Xerxes and the threats and the defending of themselves, this is his attitude toward his people and towards these, these foreigners. He was seeking the good of his people, seeking the good and speaking peace to all his countrymen. What a, what a great way to live in spite of all the stuff and the ups and the downs of life, that you, would, that you would actually do these things. You would seek the good and speak peace. Let's pray on that note. Father, tonight, as we finish this awesome book, and we read again about these 
amazing things of, of Mordecai and what these people did who, who trusted in you, we see his, his character shine through greatly, Lord. What a, what a man this, this Mordecai was. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would help us, no matter what we go through in life, to not have grudges or, or vengeance or, or things creep up from maybe former uh, hatred or former um, struggles that we've had to go through that involve people. And those people, are they, they mess with our hearts, Lord. But here Mordecai spent the rest of his days speaking and doing peace and good. Would you arm us, Lord, with speaking peace to our countrymen, that they would know where peace is, that peace is found with you, and help us to do good to our countrymen. We are a a nation after all. We we are surrounded with, with people in our nation. Lord, would you help us to seek their good, and would you help us to speak put that, that gospel thing in our, in our hearts and in our mouths to come forth at just the right moment to speak and do good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. 